you can make a lot of money going up and you actually make a lot more money going a lot more money and much quicker going down there's an expression on wall street that says the bull goes up the stairs and the bear jumps out the window hello and welcome to corvinus business intelligence this is a podcast series dedicated to learning about and from today's and tomorrow's business leaders and to understanding the cutting edge issues on which they work. Today's podcast is focused on the markets. We are just delighted to have as our guest on Corvinus Business Intelligence today, quantitative strategist Nicholas Vardy. Based in Europe, Nicholas is a widely recognized expert on exchange-traded funds and an accomplished investment expert. Nicholas has been a regular commentator on international media, such as the Fox Business Network, and has also been cited in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Fox Business News, CBS Market Watch, Yahoo Finance, and MSN Money Central. This podcast is part one of our discussion with Nicholas Vardy. Please be sure, when they're released, to listen to parts two and three. This podcast was created and prepared by the Budapest Investment Club of Corvinus University's School of Business in Budapest. We are speaking to you from Budapest the stunning and historic capital of Hungary. My name is Theodore Boone. I am a member of the faculty of Corvinus University's School of Business and one of your hosts for this program. I will introduce Nicholas Vardy as our guest in greater detail in a moment. But first, I would like to introduce my co-host for this podcast and one of the co-chairs of Corvinus University's Budapest Investment Club, Anita Hamar. Anita, could you say hello to our listeners and tell them a little about yourself? Yes, thank you, Ted. I actually started the foundation of Budapest Investment Club at the end of 2018, when we started with 10 members, and now we have over 90 members each semester, so that is great progress. I also graduated from Corvinus Business and Management, the International Study Program in 2019. To our listeners, Please make sure to follow our podcast so you don't miss out on new episodes we upload every Monday. Thank you, Anita, and it's a pleasure to have you as a a co-host. Nicholas Vardy, in January 2018, became the Oxford Club's first and only exchange-traded fund strategist, writing for the daily Liberty Through Wealth e-letter, formerly Investment U, which is provided to over 350,000 subscribers, as well as for its flagship newsletter, the Oxford Communique. Nicholas is also the editor of the new exchange-traded fund trading service, Oxford Swing Trader. We will get into details of Nicholas Vardy's very impressive and background and experience later in this podcast. But one aspect I would like to highlight now 
is Nicholas's prior affiliation with Corvinus University here in Budapest. Nicholas, in addition to his studies and degrees from Harvard and Stanford, in his student days studied at Corvinus University under the prestigious Fulbright Scholars Program. So Nicholas, this is a bit of a homecoming for you back to Corvinus. So welcome back to Corvinus. Well, Ted, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. It's our pleasure. Nicholas, I would like to start with a point that you recently wrote about, and that is the issue of financial bubbles. You wrote as follows. Financial bubbles occur with remarkable regularity. You speak of the tulip bulb bubble in Holland, the South Sea Company in 1720, and the dot-com boom of the late 1990s. You state, quote, financial bubbles are remarkably similar. First, all are driven by a compelling story. You state, today, that story is disruptive technology. And then you state, in 2020, any stock with exposure to the cloud, digital payments, electric vehicles, or the stay-at-home economy has soared. Valuations have become untethered from traditional values. You state, the bubble inevitably bursts. Paper fortunes go up in smoke. Today's heroes become tomorrow's zeros. Could you expound on these statements for us? Sure, absolutely. You know, I came across an interesting observation actually on my Twitter account the other day, which suggested that successful investing is 60% psychology, 30% history, and only 10% finance. But it's very important in, in, uh, to get historical perspective on financial markets, and it's not a perspective that you usually get by watching CNBC or any of the traditional uh, news outlets. Understanding financial history is extremely important because human psychology remains unchanged. People love a good story. They love a leader attached to a story. Uh, and they will pay up and make and lose fortunes on the back of essentially these stories. Actually, Robert Schiller, who's a Nobel Prize economist at Yale University, recently wrote a book on narratives. And um, after he got the Nobel Prize, he doesn't have to worry about you know, losing his tenure for writing about non-economic topics. So he actually talks about the importance of narratives in the uh, collective psychology and valuation of, uh, of, uh, of financial markets. And, you know, this, the, the idea of financial bubbles is something that's, that's, uh, that's really recurring in financial history, and you see it all the time. And it's very interesting from an investing standpoint um, how this works, because you can take a step back, and you, if you understand the historical and psychological perspective of what constitutes a bubble, you can make a lot of money going up. And you actually make a lot more money going a lot more money and much quicker going down. There's an expression on Wall Street that says the bull goes up the stairs and the bear jumps out the window. Uh, There's a terrific story that, in fact, I'm I'm just in the piece that I'm writing right now about Sir John Templeton, who was the pioneer of global investing. And uh, he made his money by investing in Japan in the post-World War II era. And he essentially had most of his investment funds invested in Japan up until about the mid-1980s because Japan was extremely cheap after World War II. He made a lot of money in the 30-year period, but Japan also was a massive financial bubble, probably unprecedented um, up until recently. And he 
uh, exited the market, you know, at that time made a, made a lot of money in Japan, but he made his quickest money bidding against the dot-com bubble in 1999. He shorted all the dot-com stocks, all the major technology stocks, and he made more money in a three-month period in the first three months of the year 2000 than he did in a 30-year period by looking at fundamental values. So, fund- so financial bubbles are very much part of the financial landscape. Um, and what I find interesting is that they, they are uh, not really covered in traditional financial uh, financial curriculums, but they are crucial to making money in the markets in the real world. Yeah, I, I think um, it's really interesting what you just said. And I think the key here is timing and regarding the current bubble, because I don't think there is a debate on your side that we are in a bubble, if I'm correct. Do you know what could be the indication that it's going to burst soon? Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, you have to understand that the the perspective that I just gave you is not a uniform perspective. Otherwise, Tesla would not be trading at a $400 billion valuation when it should be, by all traditional measures, trading at, you know, a $10 billion valuation. So a lot of people actually disagree with what I say because Sir John Templeton also had a terrific quote because the four most dangerous words in investment are this time it's different. And if you talk to anybody who's investing in disruptive technologies or you know, Tesla stock, which is very much kind of a retail-driven stock right now, this time it's different is literally all you hear from them. And, uh, and you know, again, those people have never picked up a, uh, a financial, you know, uh, history textbook or understand, have this perspective. All they look at is their, their, their brokerage accounts would say, hey, listen, I made a million bucks, or I made $2 million, $2 million. Well, there's another great piece of wisdom that says, if you win a million dollars in the lottery, you best become a millionaire because then you get to keep the money. Uh, these people will not keep their money because they don't have the right psychology to be able to sell out because they believe this time is different. And they believe that these disruptive technologies and the valuation they put on these companies will last forever. In terms of the timing, well, that's a real challenge. And for that, you have to be both smart. You have to recognize the situation and you have to be lucky. To give you a concrete example of, Te- of Templeton, Templeton um, shorted the dot-com bubble in December of 1999 uh, the market famously bought, uh, uh, collapsed on March 8th of that year. So for about close to three months, he was suffering greatly because valuations were still going against him. But then, you know, the bear jumps out the, 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 the bear jumps out the window and he made a heck of a lot of money going into March, April that year. So even a guy with his level of experience didn't get the timing right perfectly. I think the, the challenge with this is uh, really getting the timing right. John Maynard Keynes had a terrific quote. He said, you know, um, the market can remain irrational more, longer than you can remain solvent. And he tried to short several financial bubbles and was unsuccessful. And then we went back to a value investing style when he was managing Trinity College's endowment uh, in, the ni- in the late 1920s and, the, and through the 1930s. So timing is tough. But I think uh, it's, it's something that you have to be aware of the, the big picture. And what I personally do is when I see kind of frothy markets, I start to place relatively small bets um, through the use of exchange-traded funds um, against the market, which basically inverse ETFs, which go up when the market goes down. And I don't make a massive big call on, on, uh, on the market. But, you know, it, as the position, if the position starts going in my direction, then I add to it. A concrete example of the drawdown in the market that we saw back in March of this year uh, with the with the COVID crisis, I did not want to sell all my positions, my long positions in my portfolio. So what I started to do was sell futures, S&P futures against those positions, and that protected the capital of my, of my, uh, of my portfolio. So again, timing is a challenge, but I think the, the, the important first step is to understand 
you know, you are in sort of this collective historical psychological reality. And uh, not to say this time it's different because it's never different. But what do you think, like, theoretically, how long it can go on? Like, is it, uh, are we talking months? Are we talking years uh, or even decades? I'll tell you what, this, the reason, the reason that, you know, every, every, uh, you know, history doesn't rhyme, but history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Okay, so you can recognize certain patterns. How far can it go? The challenging thing for macro, macro analysts right now is that the, that the, uh, the, the joker in the pack of cards is the fiscal and monetary stimulus that is being projected out by all the um, authorities globally. So there's this thing um, out there, this new way of thinking that kind of this time is different thinking in economics called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. And there's a woman named Stephanie Kelton, who was Bernie Sanders' um, economic advisor uh, and is now, I think she used to be in Rochester. I think now she's at Sony Stony Brook, Sony Stony Brook, that basically says the government should just print as much money as possible, leverage up their balance sheets. The central bank should leverage up their balance sheets. The fiscal authorities, the, you know, the, the fiscal stimulus should be leveraged up as much as possible. And basically, you can just print money ad infinitum and pay for everything. Give people a lot of free stuff, as the Bernie Sanders supporters say, pay for their educations, pay for their um, you know, pay for whatever medical care, anything they want to. And that's essentially what we're having right now is this MMT type of experiment in the real world with the massive amounts of stimulus that's being issued both by the U.S. government and by global, global uh, you know, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, um, all these different uh, fiscal and monetary authorities. And th- those, that incredible amount of money printing um, is pushing up the price of these financial assets um, for a long time. So there's an incredible kind of pool of money out there that needs to be put into work. And so anytime you have too much money t- chasing too few goods, you're going to drive the price up. Um, and you see, uh, you know, if you're a monetarist, you'll say, well, you know, like Milton Friedman famously said, um, if inflation is every time, every, every time, all the time and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. The, the problem with this is that it's eventually going to lead to inflation. Well, inflation can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It can be in consumer price inflation, which is the way most people think about it, or it can be in asset inflation like Tesla stock, um, or it can be in you know, whatever, rare cars or artwork or you know, any of these kind of things. And that's what you're seeing right now. You're seeing this incredible fiscal and monetary push throughout the world, just pushing asset prices up. And Essentially, if, if there's an authority out there that can print as much money as they want to and there's no sort of you know, restraint on it, I mean, no one in the U.S. is talking about shutting down the government for overspending, even though the rate of spending in the U.S. government, the fiscal deficit is just so much more than it ever was in 2008. That's the reason why this bubble can keep going on until one day it doesn't. And that makes it difficult to predict where it is. And in one sense, you can identify a bubble, but because there's so much money chasing so few stocks and people are caught up in these disruptive stories, it can go on for a lot longer than people think. Again, I refer you back to the quote from Keynes, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. So you need to be very, very careful. In terms of how long it can go, go on, you know, there's, it's, it's, you know no, no one really knows, but you have to realize that one day it will end and you have to prepare yourself psychologically as a trader to make money from when that shift occurs. Would it be fair to say then that given uh, your analysis of the current situation, um, that if there starts to be more of a pulling back on the printing presses of the money, that could be a sign where we're getting to the moment of of criticality on the bubble uh, bursting? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what happened with the Fed. 
I mean, a couple of years ago, they started, you know, they started easing back on quantitative easing. And, you know, you saw the effect in the markets. I mean, markets kind of flattened out. I think this, this happened in sort of 28, fall of 2018. The market's starting to really flatten out. And then there was this kind of repo crisis, which is kind of this technical thing that happened, I guess, in September 2019, so about a year ago, um, that, that actually allowed, you know, they, they used some other monetary tools to, again, sort of surreptitiously begin, begin this quantitative easing to, again, support, you know, asset prices. So the short answer is yes. You know, once the, once the authorities decide to pull back, if they decide to pull back, the challenge is, is because it's kind of, you know, this is a, it's, like a, it's like a sugar high, you know, it, it's, it's kind of working and it's, you know, keeping the economies going in a time of, you know, whatever this, obviously these statistics for the past couple quarters in terms of unemployment and contraction and, and economic growth and everything were remarkably high and it's keeping everything going and you're not paying the pie piper yet in terms of inflation. In fact, the inflation that you're seeing is kind of attractive because it's, you know, you're, you see your, you know, as, as Trump says, you know, your 401k is going up, up, up. and isn't that great. And so, you know, it seems to me that there's the central, the authorities are having less of an incentive to even sort of cut back on the equivalent of QE, QE1 or QE2 or whatever, QE4, however you want to put it, because if someone like Stephanie Kelton gets into the Fed and, you know, whatever, if in a Democratic administration, that's a distinct possibility, she will, you know, the narrative shifts and say, well, it's actually OK to print as much money as you want to. And it's OK. Everything's, you know, in fact, let's pay for everyone for everything. And, you know, it does. There, there are no repercussions to printing money forever. And so whereas there was a debate about whether, you know, just think about it, 10 years ago, it's like, well, the government is spending too much. and We really need to cut back. And, you know, there were all these Republican led government shutdowns in the U.S. None of that is happening. I mean, the Republicans agree that they should spend more. The Democrats agree and they should spend more. There's no debate about it. And that's what's kind of dangerous about the whole thing. So, yes, I think that's what's going to change the markets. But in terms of the, you know, the, the, uh, because of Kelton and this MMT, this modern monetary theory, there's the, this spending, turn, turning on the printing presses until they, you know, whatever, blow up or until they die, has acquired a certain intellectual legitimacy among certain circles, which I think is incredibly dangerous, in my personal opinion. But it's also one that could keep the bubble going for, much, for a much longer time. One last question for this segment. We've been dancing around Tesla, and it's a very popular topic nowadays. Why do people still invest in it? You know, it's, it's, it's just psychology, you know, because it's, it's going up. I mean, it's, it's actually a fascinating story. I mean, there's just so many aspects of from a, from a financial standpoint. I mean, from a financial standpoint, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, anybody who, you know, it's the kind of stuff that, like, you know, if if there were something like a, a bar, the equivalent of a bar exam in, in finance, with the closest thing is you know having a CFA, if if you would actually sort of come out with a bullish you know note on Tesla as an investment banker, you, you know you should be like disbarred, okay? Because you're completely it's just it's just it's you know any sort of by any normal measure, it's a complete farce, you know. If it's uh, institutional investors or is it individual investors that keep pushing up the price? Well, you know, look, sort of, you know, there, there's this kind of new they call this Robin Hood culture in the U.S. There's this app where you can, you know, trade for free and it's targeted at millennials and they, you know, they like Teslas. And, you know, so they, they say the retail money is kind of pumping it up, pumping it up. You know, actually, I mean, relative to the institutional money, you know, the, the, the weight of the retail investor is not that, not that important. So it's actually both institutional, relatively, or purportedly sophisticated institutional investors, as well as an army of, of retail investors um, who keep pushing the price up. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, one thing that Tesla's done well, I mean, they don't have to, they don't have to buy billboards. They don't have to pay for advertising. They've got this army of people 
trading on Robinhood and who have a lot of paper wealth right now, who have uh, who have made a lot of money on it, you know, advocating for them. And, you know, they, you always hear the same things. Oh, once you sit in a Tesla, you'll understand why the stock price is so high. So well, actually, no, it's just that's just not the way the world works. I mean, it's just it's just so, you know, again, by any fundamental valuation, it should be worth, you know, whatever, 10th or 20th of what, of what it's worth right now. But no, you, it's, you know, they always have another story. That is, and the stories always end up into four words. This time it's different. Unfortunately, I've run out of time for this uh, segment. It's really been fascinating, including your observations and obviously serious concerns about the tech bubble. And also what I would say is your suggestion that uh, MBA students focus not only on the here and now, but uh, focus on uh, the history of what has happened in, in markets uh, in, the, in, in the past. So I would very much like to thank uh, our guest uh, for the podcast, this segment, Nicholas Vardy, uh, who became the Oxford Club's first and only exchange-traded fund strategist, writing for the daily Liberty Through Wealth e-letter, which is provided to over 350,000 subscribers, as well as its flagship newsletter, the Oxford Communique. He's also the editor of the new exchange-traded fund trading service, Oxford Swing Trader. Please join us for segment two of this podcast, where, among other items, we will discuss Nicholas Vardy's views on the close relationship between investing and playing poker. Thank you, Anita. Thank you, Nicholas. This is Theodore Boone for the Corvinus Business Intelligence Podcast, a production of the Budapest Investment Club of Corvinus University in Budapest. We leave you today with these words spoken by Benjamin Franklin. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest.